This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Patrick McGuire, in for Matt Chorley, and it's been a very fun week looking after his radio show. Very much looking forward to next week too. Coming up on today's episode, England's Lionesses will be battling it out against Germany in the Euro 2022 final at Wembley this Sunday, and it really could be coming home at last. So today we were talking about the history of women's football, the politics at play, and how far the game has come. That's coming up in just a moment, but first we have Melanie Reid and James Versailles on our columnist panel, talking all things Conservatives and colostomy bags. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yeah, Friday, so it's time for our two favourite columnists, Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Hello, Patrick. Lovely to speak to you. And James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Patrick. I love the fact that Melanie and I can pretend that we know the answer. We're just being very good you sports. Can't, you're, just being, you're just being restrained. Ah. Restrained. <laughs> Uh, you know, discreet and restrained, that's uh, that's uh, that's James Forsyth in a nutshell for you. But let's get cracking because there's been big political news this morning, James. I'd love to talk to you about it. Ben Wallace endorsing trust in the Times and the Sun. You can, of course, read his op-ed on the Times.co.uk or pick up a copy of the paper. It's a big moment, isn't it, James? Because this is a man who's kept his powder dry, the Defence Secretary, the favourite among Tory members. You know, he's been telling people for weeks, or rather his allies have been telling people for weeks, that he thinks he can be the kingmaker in this race. And he's finally broken cover and declared for trust. Do you think this is a, you know, do you think this is a game-changing moment or is it a sign that Liz Truss is probably destined for number 10 and Ben Wallace can now board that train safely without, uh, without being at risk of ending up under the Rishi Sunak Express? So I think Ben Wallace is in a unique position in this leadership contest from the moment he decided not to run. He was, the, I think he was the only member of the cabinet who could be confident that they would hold their current post under whoever won. Mm. Uh, and I think you, if you were watching the, um, the, the, the hustings in Leeds last night, I think it was kind of clear when Nick Ferrari basically said said what, uh, a version of what you just said, which is, you know, that Ben Wallace's support in this contest is going to be very important. And he asked both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss what, what they would say to Ben Wallace to try and persuade him over the line. And I thought you could I thought you could tell in their respective answers that Liz Truss was much more confident of getting Ben Wallace over the line uh, than Rishi Sunak was. And I think, look, it, it is obviously... Uh, a boost for her um but i think it is 
it is more a confirmation of her current position as the mm. front runner, rather uh, than a game changing moment, which could prove decisive. Yeah, uh, and so I think this is, and I think the the, the kind of the the interesting um, the interesting question now is, you know, is you know th these ballots go out Monday, Tuesday. I mean, probably you know land on door on doormats on Tuesday. You know, does anything change between now and then to to change the dynamics of this race? Mel, watching from afar, what's your sense of the race? Do you think anything can change uh, change uh, Liz Truss's dominant position? Um, I, I thought that perhaps not. And I thought that uh, Ben Wallace, what he said, it, it plays straight to his audience, which is, of course, as we know, it's the Tory, the members of the, of the Conservative uh, Party. Um, it's like the, the big endorsement, isn't it? It's having... He's putting the military behind her. It's the you know you, he's telling her you've got the army behind her, and I thought one of the very very um, in the sun he made a he made a military an analogy. Uh, he suggested that Sunak, you know, by resigning uh, on the day he resigned, you know, what if the markets had crashed? In other words, um, the man had deserted his post. Mm. He he wasn't on, on guard. AWOL. I, and and I thought that you know that is almost the white feather. It's 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 a very Considering his audience, I think it was a very, very strong thing to to say. Yes, and it, it, it was really interesting reading. The, you know, it's a much punchier James, a much punchier uh, pitch for Liz Truss, and indeed a uh, much more sort of polemical attack on Rishi Sunak in the Sun. Whereas in the Times, he was very careful and very statesmanlike, and you know, went out of his way to say Rishi Sunak was a competent and capable minister. Yeah, look, I, I've known Rishi Sunak for years, and I do, I do think there is a, there is a, I think we, I think in some ways we are in danger of misremembering what happened at the very end of Boris Johnson's premiership. Mm. Um, it's worth remembering that when um, Sajid Javid and, and Rishi Sunak resigned, they were the, the, the they were the were of that wave of resignations. They were the first two cabinet ministers to resign, and there was a new chancellor within a couple of hours. Nazim mm. Zahawi was appointed. I, I think the idea that somehow that that, that by resigning they they left the creation of you know that there would be no one to man the treasury. That hospitals now, were make, shutting and banks were you, shutting down. Yeah, you can you can maybe make that argument that 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 uh, as Ben Wallace did about his own position towards the end, which is hang on a second someone has to be defense secretary you know this country is involved in in in, in important work in terms of supplying ukraine and you know if ever you know if if, if if the prime minister can't start the government that is going to cause problems and so he wasn't going to go i don't think you can make that argument about people who resigned at the very beginning of this process because you know number 10 replaced them quickly and number 10 argued that they were just going to kind of crack on i mean it, it, i think i think that is i think there is a, there is a kind of problematic argument there and i think also i find this argument that you that somehow ministers should have stayed in their posts and then voted no confidence in the 1922 ballot very odd i think that you know it, it, i i mean i think i think we most people would have thought it would be wrong for ministers to stay in their post if they didn't have confidence in the prime minister and that's a common complaint we make uh, you know people make of politicians that they don't follow their consciences and that's you know, the exact opposite Ben Wallace uh, appears to be arguing that. James, let's have a talk about your column because it's very interesting. You know, the Tories having a very rancorous leadership race and I think a lot of the rancor, yes, is personal, but I think clearly part of the reason why it's so ill-tempered and so uh, ferocious in, in its arguments is because 
we're talking about two irreconcilable models of running an economy or, or, or looking at economy. So, you know, you talk about the five big arguments the Tories need to have in your column today. The first one is the one they're having, as you say, with some vigour. Are the Tories fiscal conservatives or not? What, what are the other four? Uh, the, the other four are energy policy. Um, you know, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss say that they support fracking where um, where communities uh, endorse it. Which effectively uh, means they don't support fracking because it, no community exactly. does it. And I mean, I mean, this is a real problem. It's very tempting to say, oh, yes, we're in favour of fracking. As long as we, it, it, that is, that is, and so what are you going to do? And I think one of the things we, we need to realise is it's not just that energy prices are going to be horrendously high this winter. And I think there is an underappreciated risk of, of blackouts and, and all those kind of things in, in, in the winter. But there is also another problem, which is I don't think any democracy is going to want to be reliant on Russian gas after this. And so that is going to put more of a squeeze on things like Norwegian gas that the UK has traditionally relied on. So what are we going to do to generate more energy at home? I think we need to start talking about the kind of the trade-offs involved in that. You know, that you know the kind of traditional argument against nuclear power, for example, has been that it is expensive. It is more expensive than other forms of energy. But you know, is is security of supply now so paramount that it's worth paying a premium for domestically produced energy? I think that that is something that 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 they need to discuss. Then then there is leveling up. I think that you know that there is a what began this political realignment that ended up with the Tories with an 80-seat majority in 2019? What was the Brexit referendum in 2016? That was won in part by a sense that the economic model of this country was not working for, for, for large parts of it. And Boris Johnson's answer to that was levelling up. But I still think there is a Tory struggle to define what levelling up actually means. Well, Liz Truss is saying, I, want, I would level up in a conservative way, but without really explaining what that even means and how you reconcile it with her very, uh, you know, neo-Thatcherite free market vision. Uh, and I think the other question is this, is, you know, obviously in the longer term, levelling up is about skills and infrastructure. Mm. But there is also another question, which is, what do people see in 2024 that in their communities that says to them, well, we voted Tory and something changed. I mean, that, that's the other thing they need to look at. The, 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 the fourth argument they need to have, and give them rather a lot of arguments, is about free speech, what they think about the whole legal but harmful concept in the online safety bill, you know, what, what, online harms, what, what do you think about that? And the final argument they need to have is about, is about Boris Johnson. They need to work out what they think of him as a party. And I think it's difficult for them because, you know, on the one hand, nobody else could have broken the Brexit deadlock in the way that he could, that he did, and created the new electoral coalition that he did. But he also was the author of his own downfall mm. um, in that a series of unforced errors meant that he no longer commanded. I think if it had gone to a ballot, you know, um, uh, I would defer to you on this, Patrick, but if it had gone to a ballot, I really don't think there is anyone who seriously thinks that he would have won a no-confidence vote. No, absolutely, abso well, absolutely not. We were having those conversations in the, in, the, in the week before the Cabinet took that decision for them. You know, it was clear that the 1922 committee was going to elect an executive that would have let a vote happen in short order and then, you know, dozens of Tory MPs would have changed sides and he would have ended up, uh, he would have ended up out in his ear in a much, you know, in an equally unedifying way. Um, but yeah, lots of arguments for the Conservative Party to have there. Um, it's hard to see a clean resolution. And I think if you don't have those arguments, though, 
the danger is that they fester in some ways. I mean, mm. they actually need to they actually need to have this out. It's a cathartic you know, look, process. In, a, in an ideal world, they would manage to have this out without getting into you know people's shoes and earrings and all that stuff. But they, they on the on the on the on the substance, they actually need to settle these arguments. Mel, let's move but, on. Sorry, go on, Mel. No, I was just going to say perhaps we need to take a step back and realise that you know it, it, these are all things that should have been sorted out a long time ago. Mm. This is policy that 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 that, that um, you know had had uh, Johnson been been an, good at, at actually thinking about what to do, then um, these things would have been we we would know the Conservatives would know what they were doing. Um, it's it's they've, they've got such little time to affect anything. Well, I think it's the flip side of that. One of the great uh, virtues of the Conservative Party, one of the great abilities of the Conservative Party, it can constantly reinvent itself in, in the pursuit of keeping power. But that often means, James, doesn't it, that they will flip-flop on quite fundamental questions from one government to the next. You know, within this period of government, we've had successive Tory governments disavowing what the last has done. And then you have a, a parliamentary party, you have a group of you know 300 or, or, or odd MPs who actually aren't entirely comfortable philosophically with the series of U-turns they make from government to government. Yeah, and I think there, I think this is I think this argument about fiscal conservatism is so revealing because in in 2010 that was the er rationale of the government, right? It, that, mm. it, that it was that, that it was the kind of Tory party's duty to to run sound public finances, and you know that's what they that's what they did, and that was essentially the the entire purpose of that. Of that, of that, you know, Tory-dominated coalition, and so it is remarkable that now you're in a, in a, in a position where where the position is almost the opposite. The position is that you know that the 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 overriding priority must be growth, and so therefore slash taxes um, uh, at the same time that you're not actually proposing any great spending cuts. Quickly, Mel, we've been banging on about politics for far too long. Let's talk about <laughs> colostomy bags because the chairman of the Marleyburn Cricket Club has been uh, slammed this morning for making a gag about people who use uh, stomas. Uh, is, it, is it funny? Well, two things to say about it. One, um, I'm, I'm, I, he has d- donated a large amount to, made a significant personal donation to Clostomy UK. I actually weirdly happen to be a patron of that organisation. And I'd like to say, one, it's absolutely brilliant that we're talking about this. Mm. Um, and secondly, well, it's not easy for some people to talk about. People can be a bit squeamish, can't they? Totally squeamish. And let me say that broadcasters and the mainstream media are some of the worst because they don't they they don't like talking or writing about these things. So it's actually brilliant that that this 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 is this, this is being talked talked about. And but the second thing is that it's it's all about time and place. And I I have a lot of sympathy with 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 Bruce Carnegie Brown because you know I used to make bad jokes about colostomy bags. And and I think there, you know, it, it, it's 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 that sort of dark humour, and some of the darkest of dark humour. Um, it, it, some it's in desperately bad taste, but it is belongs to, and it is employed by um, spinal patients, colorectal surgeons, people who actually live with these things. Um, you know, we do make jokes about it. We don't particularly like jokes being made about it in the public anymore. And and I. And I think that's where it, you 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 know it, it, it's difficult because you can make thoughtless, funny remarks, um, but when you're actually in the position, you think, well, hang on, it's not quite that funny. However, having said that, I think the most outraged about this are people who don't act, who haven't actually had a colostomy. 
they just think, oh, this is a good woke issue. We can we can uh, we can attack this bloke for being so insensitive. But you know, we all fall down pit ho- pit pitfalls. We all we all make mistakes. And uh, and Bruce Carnegie Brown, Carnegie Brown has put his hands up, as you say, donated a few quid to Colostomy UK, and uh, and has done the right thing. You would say, Mel. Uh, totally, totally. That was Melanie Reed and James Forsyth. You can read them in The Times by getting yourself a subscription. You know what to do, just head to The Times website. Up next, we go back in time to 1921, where women's football was banned. And I look forward to the England versus Germany Euros final this Sunday. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. Now it's time for my chat on the women's football. Yes, it's coming home. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, it's been a while since we heard that, hasn't it? England's Lionesses will battle it out against Germany in the Euro 2022 final at Wembley this Sunday. We've had plenty of politics this week, so let's talk about what we're all looking forward to on Sunday night. They'll be trying to get their hands on the trophy for the very first time in their history. The Lionesses have never won a World Cup or European Championship title. The last time they were in a major final, of course, was in 2009 when they lost to Germany. Uh, pretty resoundingly, it has to be said, in the final of the Euros. So it's a big big game this Sunday as if that needs restating. We thought today we'd look back at the history of the game. Pretty controversial at times. Why it was banned by the FA at the height of its popularity in 1921 and the progress it's made since then and the prospects for the legacy of this tournament that we've all been talking about for the past uh, past fortnight or so. First, let's talk to the woman who's been covering it all for the Times, Molly Hudson, football and England women reporter for the Times and Sunday Times. Morning, Molly. Morning, Patrick. It's been a it's been a great competition, hasn't it? I think it's really captured the imagination of people in a way that perhaps previous women's tournaments. I mean, with every tournament, the in, interest increase is, but this one feels like it's captured the national imagination in a way that others have struggled to, hasn't it? I think it has, and I think obviously it hugely helped that this tournament is is in England. I think it was so important to fully capture the potential of this tournament that England also got far, and I think that's a credit to um, Serena Wiegmann. It's a credit to the players and the FA and the support they've put in place. 
I think it's been incredible to see the way that it's grown. I mean, just just for the times as as an example, you know, even for match day minus one of the the semi final, we had um, front and back page coverage, mm. and I think that's that's incredible for women's football. And I think it's just so exciting for the women's game that it has managed to grasp this opportunity because speaking to players in the past. You know, Casey Stoney from London London 2012, she felt as though they hadn't quite captured that moment. And if they had, it could have created a much bigger legacy. So I think it's it's so important for the Lionesses that they have really captured their, their moment in the sun, so to speak, this summer. And also, you know, we've had a government that's been willing to, to pay up for a... Because, you know, governments hate hosting international sporting tournaments. You know, look at the Olympics, how much that costs. The government is now sort of belatedly getting behind the idea of hosting the women's Euros. You know, we're bidding for the men's Euros in 2028. Actually, we are, we are hosting the men's Euros in 2028. Do you think this has proven that it's been a worthwhile investment? Because, you know, clearly no government wants to stump up loads of money, particularly at a time like this, for a tournament that doesn't capture the imagination. I remember at the start of the tournament, or before the tournament, there was a bit of controversy. The organisers were accused of not being optimistic or ambitious enough with their choice of some of the grounds, saying they were too low capacity. But it's turned out all right, hasn't it? It's turned out everybody has put a lot of faith in this tournament and it's basically gone off without a hitch. People have been turning up to the games and we're all talking about it. Yeah, and I think it's given a really good kind of showcase of of England and what it does best. I think last summer, some of the the kind of scenes we saw at Wembley kind of soured that little bit. And I Mm. think if you speak to anybody that's reported on this tournament they'll tell you that the atmosphere has been fantastic it's a real it's a real family atmosphere as well but also at Bramwell Lane for the semi-final there there were a lot of just normal male football fans that were just really enjoying it which was lovely to see um I think we've seen we've seen a great atmosphere there was obviously the fan park at Trafalgar Square as well um thousands were there watching it and I think yeah it, it has done really well I think it's been record-breaking in terms of the attendances, in terms of the non-England games as well, which I think has been so impressive because, you know, you always worry when you host one of these things that if you don't quite get it right, then there can be lots of empty seats, which obviously it doesn't look good on the host and it doesn't look good on the product itself either. Um, and I think it's been fantastic. And I think that the amount of time of writing about it yesterday, I think that just the group stage alone broke the record for non-host attendances like three times um every stage has broken an attendance record and then you know we're looking to a final on Sunday which could be the the highest attended Euros final male or female which is an incredible achievement and you know we're talking we're taking an optimistic tone here Molly we're talking about how great the tournament's been but there is still one game the biggest game yet that crucial game against Germany of all sides on Sunday uh looking back at the stats England have lost 21 out of 27 games against Germany at this level. Will this game be different? Are you optimistic? I think it will be a very difficult game. And I think, as it has been throughout the whole tournament, it's going to be how England react to that um, that kind of atmosphere, the pressure, because they've done very well up until this point. But I think everyone is aware that this is going to be like a level up from anything that the majority of them have experienced before. I mean, Jill Scott is the only player that was part of the 2009 team that reached a final, but that was in Finland. I mm. think the attendance was about 15,000. So it's going to be completely different to anything they've experienced. And I think how they can handle that will go a long way to deciding who can win the game. Because I think if England can play to their best... If they can harness the capacity home crowd. 
Exactly, exactly. And the, the way that they've performed in this tournament, we've seen they can score goals. They, you know, they've destroyed mm. the best teams in the world. So I think they can perform to the best of their ability. They can definitely win that game and and kind of turn turn those records. But it just depends how they handle that because we know that Germany have have so much experience in finals. Molly, thank you very much. Look forward to reading your coverage over the weekend from Wembley. That was Molly Hudson, football reporter at The Times and Sunday Times. She's reporting on the women's Euros, of course. You can read her just by picking my paper or going to thetimes.co.uk. Now, we're all talking about women's football now. There'll be a capacity crowd at Wembley, but it very nearly wasn't like this. Now, let me take you back in time. Women's football wasn't always so popular among the sporting authorities. It all began during the twenty, uh, the First World War in Preston, when men obviously were at war, they weren't playing, so instead the masses went to watch teams like Dick Kerr ladies, factory teams, munitions factory teams, who would attract crowds of tens of thousands and were going global tours and were just as famous as the men. But just as the game was taking off, the women's game, the FA banned it completely in 1921, declaring it quite unsuitable for females. Now, a man who knows plenty about this subject and has a family link to that most famous of women's team, Dick Kerr's ladies, is Steve Bolton, grandson of Lizzie Ashcroft and a women's football historian. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Um, first, you know, we'll, 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 dis- we'll discuss the wider context and the politics at play here first. But let's talk about your grandmother, Lizzie Ashcroft, one of the great stars of the women's game that was cut off in its prime. Why did she start playing football? Because that must have been quite bold for a, a woman in the North a working class woman in the north to 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 do in the uh, in the nineteen tens. Well, uh, she came from uh, a borough of St Helens called Parr, two mm. up two down, mining family, um, uh, ten in a house, ten in the house, sort of eight siblings, mum and dad, and a lodger. Um, and uh, I think they were just basically chucked out in the street for the day, and so she was a tomboy. I think that's the the, the best way of describing it, and uh, grew up. And I, I always say this, I don't think she was a, a woman who liked football. I think she was a footballer who happened to be born a woman. Mm. So it was in her DNA. And, and I think it's the same with the great Lily Parra and, and all those working class northern women. And, and Dick Kerr's ladies, um, you know, football nerds like me know the name of this team because it's one of the iconic sides of the early 20th century, despite being, well, both despite and because of the fact that it was a woman's team. Talk us through the history there and how it became such a such a massive team because this is sort of a completely lost world for most of us. It's a world in which, you know, factories had football teams and, and women were playing football for them and the men were at war. It's such a, a really interesting sort of uh, specimen of that time and place in history, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And I'll, I'll try and sum it up briefly. Very mm. complex history. Um, Basically, at the end of the First World War, as the women became embedded in heavy industry and uh, the sort of Victorian moors were changing, it became a virtuous thing to play football and raise money for charity. And they really enjoyed it. And it raised, uh, you know, it's a sort of virtuous circle. There was a little dip in 1919 when the sort of the men had come back. And then uh, uh, from 19, uh, early 1920 onwards, especially after the Femina Sport Tour, uh, the French tour, sorry, um, it, it went bananas. And by the end of 1921, there wasn't a, a blade of grass in the country uh, where you didn't have women's football taking place and raising money for charity. But 
it was something that that you know the, the the FA were never going to tolerate. Basically, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That you say the men came back from war, but of course, not every footballer did. I think of uh, Walter Tull, the first uh, yes. black football league player who was killed uh, in the First World War. So clearly, you know, teams like Dick Kerr's ladies, uh, in a perverse way, almost benefited from the from from the war, didn't they? But it's really interesting yes. you say there, Steve. There was a women's football boom just after the First World War and when teams like Ditko's Ladies were, were, were capturing the public imagination. And that's exactly what we're talking about now. We're saying, will this tournament, literally 100 years on, will that spark a women's football boom? Why was the game cut off in its prime by the FA? As you say, was that sort of, you know, the last gasp of Victorian moors? Was it, you know, the sort of the upper-class football administrators looking at the looking at the working classes playing the game and thinking, well, hang on, we can't have the men's game eclipsed here? I, I think it, it was all of the above. There were, there were so many factors uh, involved. And although um, Frederick Wall, uh, if you, he was the uh, all-powerful secretary of the FA from 1895 to 1934, if you look at his autobiography, uh, he mentioned women's football in three sentences. And he watched the game in 1895, the famous Crouch End game with the British ladies, and he references that game in a, uh, his book in 1935 when he's saying why he's banned women's football. So that, that they were, um, there was a, still a big hangover of Victorian ideas and social morals, and that that was sort of uh, came back with a vengeance, really, after, in the complex turmoil of a broken country after World War One. Because although we sort of won the war. <laughs> We, we were in quite a state, and it, we, that state still continued to the uh, um, general strike of 1926. Mm. So there they weren't fertile conditions for women's uh, football to prosper. And uh, the, the, basically, the FA were saying, we run this club, and I'm afraid you don't meet the criteria to be this, in this club. That's what they were saying. And, and that, of course, meant that women's teams couldn't use the facilities that men's teams did. They couldn't organise official leagues. What yeah. do you think, and, and good historians, Steve, I know hate this sort of hypothetical, but indulge right. me. What do you think the women's game could have looked like had that ban not happened? Do you think that we would be, you know, the women's super league is now taking off, but clearly it's it's played at, you know, basically non-league grounds from the men's game. Do you think there's a universe in which the ban doesn't happen and the women's game and the men's game are on a par in terms of audiences and, and cash today? It's a, it's a great question. And uh, I, I, my feeling uh, is, um, you know, the ban was wrong, mm. but I think it's inevitable. Um, if it hadn't have happened, um, wow. You know, uh, um, I, I, I was privileged to be at um, the Gail Newsome walk football to Ghost on the Dick Curl Lady story two years ago and I was very tired. I had a long drive that Sunday and I was only going to go for an hour and I ended up staying all day and it was beautiful. There was every kind of age and athlete and size and shape and I have never seen such intense football and what they were doing, these mostly older women, they were they were having this the adrenaline rush, the, the, the love of, of competition and camaraderie that I, as a man, can remember age seven going through as a rite of passage. And for a hundred years, the unfortunate thing about the ban is that's been denied to, to women. And now that cork is coming out of the bottle, I think it's it's unstoppable. And it, it's really just about educating the men. The women will play football. 
Well, good luck with that, Steve Bolton, grandson of Lizzie Ashcroft, one of the stars of early 20th century women's football and also a football historian in his own right. Really interesting insights there into the game as it was and the game as it might have been and why the women's game is now playing catch-up 100 years on uh, from that ban. Now we can speak to a woman who has played for the England setup, Lucy Ward, former England player and now TalkSport presenter. Morning, Lucy. Morning, OK. I'm very well, very well. Very jealous that you got a turnout for uh, England under-21s back in the day. <laughs> Tell me about your journey there, because we've just been hearing about how it's often been difficult for uh, the women's game, one, to be taken seriously, and two, for individual players to, to break through. So what was what was your sort of journey? Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean, I was um, a player because my brother used to play, so I wanted to beat him all the time. And did you? Um, yeah, well, I have eventually ended up playing in the same primary school team as him. But it was strange because when you played in, in those days in primary school, I was allowed to play in primary school, but then when you reached 11, you were banned from playing football. There were no girls' teams, and so you couldn't play and the same team as as the boys and people thought I was weird even my my own friends thought I was weird but I think it was just my determination I had a I had a natural sort of talent for 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 sport and I enjoyed football so I just kept playing and I didn't my parents were very good I think dads are so important as well as mums but dads are key particularly now just to, for that encouragement and and, and neither mum or dad or brother ever gave any negative vibes to me so I just kept going regardless of what everybody else sort of said but I was always known as the girl that played football in the area which is obviously now these girls it's completely natural that that happens so I ended up uh, not being able to play and then when I went to secondary school I started to play uh, in a women's team where the next eldest was about 21 so you can imagine 12 year old playing in a in a senior team was ridiculous at the thought of it now I was so tiny and I used to just get battered every single week but it was I, I loved playing and the women that I played with in their generation you know they just had absolutely nothing they just played for the love of it at mm. least I had as I went through my career I had glimpsed you know I played an FA Cup final in front of millions and you know I, I got the, to the start of the the, the sort of semi-professional professional era sort of span that but uh, yeah it wasn't it wasn't easy so it, watching it now is is incredibly overwhelming for people like me. Is it it's sort like of it's bittersweet, Lucy? Uh, no, because I think you have to you have to relax yourself into that you were a pioneer. Mm. Without me and the people uh, my era and the people older than me, then these girls would not be able to do what they're doing now. And, and I think that's so important. You know, not everybody can benefit from years gone by. Um, you know, we all know the damage done by the FA ban. Um, we only have to see the the um, what happens in the USA. They had a legislation in in the seventies called Title Nine, which mm. which didn't allow any sort of inequality with um, opportunity for girls to play the same as boys. So they don't have that stigma. There's always been a stigma attached with women playing playing football. And you know, even now, I, I still, I you know, I, I think I tweeted something yesterday, and you still get comments from blokes on Twitter, you know, negative comments. And I look at the profile picture and they've obviously sat with a picture with their daughter. And I think, well, if you've got that attitude with your daughter, then she's got absolutely no chance of, of, of shooting for the stars. It's interesting you mentioned America, Lucy, because, you know, we often on this side of the Atlantic look at America and say, our oh, social attitudes there are so backwards. But I think you're absolutely right, aren't you? Women's football there is has always been a bit of a phenomenon. If you look at the great women's footballers, most football fans could name, you know, Megan Rapinoe, they all tend to be Americans. They dominate the sport in the way they've never dominated 
um, the men's sport. And, and you touched on it in your last answer, but I'm just interested, how has the game changed since you started to become involved in it? What are the big changes you've observed as a player and also as a as a commentator? And it's all culminated in this big tournament that the entire country, it seems, is watching. But what are the, what are the big changes you've noticed since your early days as a player? Yeah, I just think the the opportunity to train as a full time professional is massive. You know, you you you're playing football and training every single day. The, the the difference always between the England national team and 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 for example the USA was fitness because you know these players were playing professional over in the states or wherever they were playing professional, and and we didn't have that. Now we've got a WSL where everybody in the world wants to play in, and, and it's one of the best competitive leagues in the world. And that has made a massive difference because, you know, everybody knows with practice of anything, you get better. So in America, the girls who were athletes would play football and they wouldn't even think twice about it. In this country, it tends to be what, what we used to describe as tomboys played football. Now, in the last sort of 10, 15 years, you've got girls who were ath athletes, so physically capable, going into football and getting coached by full-time, you know, uh, well-qualified coaches coaching and training and, and that's made all the difference and you can see now you know the lionesses and the youngsters who've come through the youth tournaments and and got experience in youth tournaments the likes of the tune and russo's you know that they've come into it and along with the experienced players they're now used to this sort of level and they're, they're fit enough to compete and lucy just before i let you go your prediction for the game on sunday do you think England can do it I think they can do it. I think they've surprised me all the way along, um, especially when they've got gone behind and it's not gone their way, and like against Spain, and then when when Sweden started well, but Germany are really ominous. I, I've covered them all the way through. I've done most of their games for for TV and and radio, and and yeah, that England will have to be at the top of the game to to beat the Germans because the Germans just know exactly how to win. Well, Lucy Ward, you can listen to her coverage of the Lionesses game on Sunday on our sister station, Talk Sport. She's also a former England player, so she's been there and seen it all. Now, what can the government do and what can the sporting authorities do to make sure this tournament isn't the end of this country's interest in women's football? Let's speak to Yvonne Harrison, Chief Executive of Women in Football, to find out what she thinks. Morning, Yvonne. Good morning. What do you think the government should do because it's... Uh, just about to launch a review into women's football. We've already had the grassroots review of of men's football in the game more generally after the Super League debacle, which is you know focusing on how to make sure the the mega books at the top of the game sustains a healthy culture uh, underneath it. But what can ministers do to make sure that this uh, this revolution in the game we're seeing now is is sustained and and really has a positive legacy? Um, I think there were some really interesting sort of recommendations that came came out of the review, and 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 you know we would like to hope that that they are sort of implemented and and followed through, and and that that people in the women's game are listened to during the review because I think we've got people who live and breathe women's football and have also been part of the men's game as well, so that their thoughts, experiences are valid. So what we don't need is, you know, anybody coming and saying this is what needs to happen. Mm. It needs to come from the bottom up. And we've seen that with obviously the Super League and, and sort of what happened there in terms of fans. I think for me, what's really positive about the women's Euros in this country, and I think it's something that we do very, very well in the UK, is the legacy program. So, you know, the FA from the very beginning have invested heavily in a legacy program across the host cities and sometimes beyond that. And um, so, you know, we're going to see 
more female coaches, more female officials, more opportunities to play um, football, you know, equal opportunity within schools actually to play football. Um, and that's really, really important. So for me, the, the almost that continuation is is vital. And let's not forget, we, you know, as this tournament finishes, there'll then be an international break. We then kick into the Super League. And then beyond there, we've actually got um, the World Cup, the Women's World Cup. So I think we've got this really interesting sort of crest of a wave to, to run across over the next um, sort of 18 months. And the big thing for me is that investment needs to be consistent. You know, we've talked in the show, people have spoken about the fact that women were banned from playing football uh, and even not that long ago um you know girls were not allowed to play beyond a certain age and then you know the game only professionalized uh, a matter of years ago so investment prompt prime investment is is needed and we need to make sure that the conditions for players professional players um, are improved and made fairer because at the moment there's a real disparity between you know the top players the players that will play with the lionesses and other players and particularly when you look at championship level you know um salaries um you know whether people are full-time professional or not money so there's talk- a lot to be done. money yeah exactly and, and money always talks particularly in football yeah. if on if you'll pardon the dreadful pun just part of your worry as the game gets bigger as more and more of us watch it as these issues always tend to, because it's the women's game, do you ever worry about it becoming a a political football in the culture wars? Do you ever worry, do, have you worried about that? Or do you think actually you heartened by the the idea that actually everybody seems to just be getting behind it and it hasn't, you know, fallen foul of those pitfalls that sometimes big stories involving gender tend to? Yeah, I, I think I think there's always a, a risk and a, da- a danger of that. But I think um, we've got incredibly passionate people in the game. And I think the FA have done an amazing job in terms of the investment that they've put in and continuing to put in, to make sure the game is more diverse and more accessible right across the country. So, yes, there, there is a danger. Um, but I think the platform of this event, and actually more data coming into the women's game. Um, I've seen, you know, the workload report from FIFPRO and it, sh- it shows that, um, you know, the more playing time um, we're getting and it, domestically and then with international competitions like, the, uh, um, you know, the Champions League and then, and then international games, there's a direct correlation that, to that between successes um, sort of with the international teams and wedded to that, you know, if your international teams are more successful and you, you're able to host events like we are with the women's Euros here, the economic impact of that and the longer term commercial impact is, is, is vast. So for me, we don't want women's football to be a pawn that's used um, in a political space, but actually football affects things socially. We see how it uh, impacts wider society. We see the opportunity we have influence and we've seen a lot of that following um, on from the men's euros and some of the amazing work that's been done around reading in schools or you know um, food banks and and things like that from from male players so for me it's about how can we use the platform of football to talk about gender equality and ensure that ultimately this is a more inclusive industry that there are some amazing career opportunities but it's not inclusive at this moment in time and a lot of our members tell us so um you know and so it's important that you know we are around we're able to advocate for our members and we can work with organizations clubs professional services organizations media organizations you know the bodies themselves the premier league and so on uh, to to actually make sure that they are 
open to and and supportive of and actually active in the space of making their environments more inclusive whether that's for players or people um off the pitch in you know administration um, and executive roles well i think that's a bit of an open goal for the two candidates for prime minister getting behind the lionesses on sunday and backing the women's game and all the economic and social impacts it can have. Uh, that was Yvonne Harrison, Chief Executive of Women in Football. Before that, we had Lucy Ward, former England player and now TalkSport presenter. Steve Bolton, women's historian and grandson of the famous 1910 sensation Lizzie Ashcroft. And Molly Hudson, football reporter for The Times. That's all we got time for on today's episode of the Redbox Podcast. I'll be back next week, still covering from Matt. He's still on holiday. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.